Hi, this is Tiffany Bova. Welcome to a reload of the What's Next podcast. This is one of my favorite episodes, and I always like to bring those ones back that had a huge impact, not only on myself, but I got a lot of feedback from listeners just like you. I hope you enjoy this week's reload of the What's Next podcast. Hello, everybody. My name is Tiffany Bova. Welcome to the What's Next podcast, where I have the distinct pleasure of welcoming Peter Fader today. He is the professor of marketing at the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania and the co-founder of Zodiac. His expertise centers around the analysis of behavioral data to understand and forecast customer shopping purchasing activities. Much of his research highlights the consistent but often surprising behavioral patterns that exist across these industries and other seemingly different domains. These insights are reflected in his book, Customer Centricity, Focus on the Right Customers for Strategic Advantage. Welcome, Peter. Great to talk to you, Tiffany. Yes, it's really a pleasure. You know, I think, uh, you know, I, you and I have known each other for some time, and it's and it's great to have you on the podcast today. You know, I, I think my my admiration for you began when I first read that book, Customer Centricity, and it continues today. So thank you for being here. Well, thanks for doing a great job on your part to spread the gospel of it. So I appreciate the opportunity to talk about some of the new stuff. Well, I try, I try. Well, we're going to start this off with something a little, uh, you know, less foreboding, if you will, and, and do something what I like to call bullish and bearish. I kind of ask three very simple questions and just get your quick take off the cuff, nothing too serious, uh, ready to go? Okay, hands on buzzers. Hands on buzzers. All right, so bullish and bearish. Do you think marketing is taught or do you think marketing can be taught or learned? Bullish on taught, bullish and bearish on learned. Oh, very bullish on taught. I, I think that people who think that it's just a gut instinct thing, there's no doubt that there is a part of that, as there is with any domain, but some of the most powerful stuff doesn't come naturally. Fair. I totally agree. All right, next, bullish and bearish. The most important customers you have are the ones you already have. Bearish. There are some whales floating around out there that are waiting to be caught, but uh, most companies aren't doing a good enough job to catch them. Okay. I also agree. This is great. So far, so good. <laughs> so, and I'm going to lead this into, this is kind of what the conversation is about today, but Wharton marketing students can beat Wall Street analysts at their own game, bullish or bearish. Big time bullish. Excellent. And, Excellent. And what what fun it's been to demonstrate that, and uh, and the best is yet to come. Well, so let's dive right in because you know I think that for those listening, uh, maybe we can start with sort of what is the genesis of lifetime value and customer centricity, and let's start there, and then let's build upon it and have that conversation about uh, what the work you guys have been doing about uh, the stocks in Wall Street. Yeah, it's it's amazing because they they seem like such totally unrelated topics, but I think as listeners will agree, they, they, there's a, a, a wonderful connection there, which spins off in all kinds of other seemingly unrelated directions too. So start the, at the very core, which is pretty much every company on the planet is very product-centric, uh, whether they want to admit that or not, that what they sell, what they do is all about the product. And the customers, yeah, you know, we care about them, but but they're more out there just to kind of uh, uh, create demand and, and soak up excess supply of the product. Uh, and I contend that that's not the only way to do business. It might be the right business for a lot of companies, 
But instead, if we take our focus off the product and put our focus on the customers and say, who are the best customers? What are the kinds of things that we can do to find more of them, to enhance their value to us, to get them to willingly and cheerfully uh, share some of that enhanced value back with us? Uh, if, if we really think about customer equity as the driving force instead of just which product are we going to sell to which customer, uh, it can lead to, to better outcomes, both for firms that are selling stuff as well as to people on Wall Street who are trying to analyze it. Well, I think part of that is also that as, as companies start to think about pivoting or shifting, I guess, from being product-centric to customer-centric, that there's this misnomer out there that all customers are created equal. Yes, that's one of the, the problems, so, uh, and maybe it's my fault. By using customer centricity as the label, it, it seems to suggest that we are going to uh, center everything we do around the customer. But that's there is no the customer, and it would be foolish to aim for the average. turns out that there's a vast differences across the customers, and our ability to see it and to leverage it that's where customer centricity is all about. It's really a question of which customers do we want to be centered around, how do we want to do so, and how are we going to create enduring value that we can't create through a, a product-centered uh, orientation. And so how do companies actually define and uncover and identify who those right customers are? All the way from, you know, we want to go out and do something like account-based marketing, right, and do some targeted advertising, all the way to I'm responding to a tweet. I mean, you've got this, you know, very large swath now of ways in which companies engage or brands engage with their potential customers and customers. And so it must make it more complicated as you look across that whole full spectrum. It shouldn't be complicated. I don't think that it is. I think that companies make it more complicated because the spectrum is so wide and all the, the tools are so numerous. At the heart of it all, the thing that we aspire to really master is customer lifetime value, is, is being able to say, uh, what's my best guess about the economic value of this customer uh, over the next you know, three to five years or beyond that, uh, and to be held accountable by those numbers and to, to really view them as not just a mere scoring system, but as, as meaningful financial numbers. And it turns out that doing that calculation by itself doesn't require all of the data and all of the technology and analytics. It, it actually can be surprisingly simple, and companies just overcomplicate it almost because they can, because they want to bring in the kitchen sink, even if it doesn't help the predictive validity of their models. And so would you, and, and this sort of leads to the reason why I wanted to have you on the podcast today is that you know, the corporate valuations have really consistently been this sort of top-down exercise with the, you know, sort of the number of customers and, and how you, they create their revenue, et cetera. And now you're almost flipping that on its head. How have you, what led you to do that and, and what have you learned? It, what led me to do it was something that was almost anecdote and aspiration. Because when we're talking about customer lifetime value, as we try to clarify what it is and motivate it, we often say, hey, listen, if we could figure out the value of each and every customer and add that up, well, that's the value of the firm. And again, we often put that out there just as a way to get a little light bulb to go off over people's heads so that they say, huh, maybe I should be calculating this CLV thing. Well, one of my PhD students, who, a, a, a brilliant, uh, a, a 
a now graduate of the Wharton School and a former hedge fund guy, he actually took it really, really seriously. He said, let's, let's really do this, and let's do it with both the rigor and the respect that finance and accounting people would demand. So let's not just do it as a way to, to amuse marketers. Uh, and, and, of course, I'll be happy to get into more of the details, but to, to take it as a, as a very, very serious exercise, not just as some kind of uh, abstract uh, parlor trick, but to do it for real companies and to do it in near real time and to, to in some cases, strongly disagree with the wisdom of the street and saying, you know what, we stand by our numbers, hold us accountable, and let's see who's right. Uh, has really gotten a lot of attention, and I'm real happy to talk more about it. Yeah, and I think you guys have even sort of coined this customer-based corporate valuation, which is fascinating for so many levels, right? Because I think, you know, in in my lifetime of of being in and around, uh, you know, people that will try to predict sort of what the numbers are going to be for a company, they get very wrapped around the numbers, but then they don't understand the sort of causal effect of kind of sales and marketing and acquiring and keeping and upselling and cross-selling and reducing of churn, right? They get very caught in the numbers and not necessarily the execution behind those numbers. So talk me through this sort of customer-based corporate valuation. I find it fascinating. So let me drive a a space between the two extremes that, that you just described. There are the folks who get caught in the numbers, and there are folks who s sometimes uh, go too far with uh, worrying about the causality and sometimes don't do enough justice to the numbers. Uh, I want to give you, a, a, how about a real specific example? The, the, the recent uh, IPO for Blue Apron. So when they announced that they were going to go public, they put out a whole bunch of numbers, some of which were required as, as part of uh, an announcing an IPO, and some of which they just kind of put out there almost as window dressing to say, hey, look at us. We have a whole lot of numbers. We're very quantitative or whatever. What we did is we looked at those numbers very, very carefully, and knowing the kinds of patterns that we tend to see uh, about how customers do things over time, how they differ from each other, uh, kind of breaking down customer acquisition patterns from retention, understanding where different costs come in. The, the numbers that they revealed let us get below the surface and really uh, understand those subcomponents like retention, acquisition, and, and, and things like uh, a cost per acquisition really, really carefully. And when we kind of put Humpty Dumpty back together again, we realized, you know what? This company's a dog, <laughs> and even under the the best assumptions that you can make, its valuation is not even half of what they were uh, expecting uh, on on the IPO. We said the the highest it's going to possibly be or could be justified is eight dollars and forty cents. Of course, it went public. They started at ten. They had a, a little pop at the beginning, and since then it's been down, down, down. I think they're de they're well, depending uh, when. People listen to it, but now they're well below 840. And I think a lot of people are drawing the, ro the wrong conclusions about why. The why is because the, the company just can't justify its value. Uh, they have bad customers, they don't stay around very long, and they're very expensive to acquire. Uh, a lot of other so-called experts are looking at it and saying, oh, it's because of the Amazon Whole Foods merger, and that just changed everything about the food market. And that's just nonsense. It has nothing to do with it. And I think it's important to kind of trust the numbers and make an evaluation on the basis of, of them and some, some good logic alone, which is what we've done in this and other cases. 
And so when you sort of back that up and say, okay, let, let's start with the fundamental of cost to acquire a customer, cost to serve a customer, lifetime value of a customer, you know, do they stay around for, you know, three months during the free trial and then cancel, you know, how many do you get from the free trial to paying monthly? And, you know, all those kinds of metrics tend to be the standard metrics, I'm guessing, that, that you and I both see for marketers and, and selling organizations. Fair? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it's, it's, it's just so important to, uh, to, to look below the surface. Don't just take some of the, the, the glitzy metrics that folks are throwing out there. Uh, and, and really think carefully about what they mean now, what, what they will likely mean in the future, uh, and, and to then marry that, that kind of customer metric understanding with the finance and accounting stuff, which I'll admit I'm no expert at, uh, uh, to, to really uh, get the best of all worlds, and then to let the data uh, tell us what we think this company is going to be worth or what its revenues are going to be, uh, instead of uh, using intuition for that, which is often what the, the folks on Wall Street are doing. Well, so what are the things that marketers or sales leaders or companies are not tracking today that you think they should be under, you know, beyond those ones I just rattled off that you said, you know, absolutely kind of, I, I feel like those are sort of, you know, that's sort of table stakes. Like if you don't know those things and you're in a recurring revenue business, there's a larger problem. But, you know, yes, so the, and indeed, uh, I think where it's actually more interesting is when you're not in a recurring revenue business, it's, it's funny how we obsess over contractual businesses, whether it's a, uh, you know, a, a SaaS model in the tech world or whether it's a magazine subscription or, you know, uh, uh, lots of other contractual settings. Because for every every contractual company that has some kind of subscription relationship, there's 15, 20, if not 100 non-contractual companies. Most companies out there are just are, are selling stuff on a transactional basis. People buy it every now and again. Sometimes they'll go a year without making a purchase. The, the size of the purchases vary incredibly. You know, think about just the size of your Amazon orders. And the worst part, the hardest part is you don't even know when the relationship's over. It's not like they say, hey, we're not renewing our contract. The best you can do is to say, hmm, it's been a long time since they made a transaction. Uh, maybe they're gone. So in the non-contractual world, which, as I just said, is more common and more complex, there we don't have nearly as much understanding uh, the, the metrics are just much less obvious than they are in the contractual world. Uh, in my research, I'm looking at both worlds, but in some sense, the contractual world is kind of low-hanging fruit. Uh, of the, the metrics you described, uh, that's kind of all you need. But if you're looking at an e-commerce business or a hotel chain or a pharmaceutical firm or, a, or, a, or an airline, um, how can you predict how many customers are going to stay along for how long, how much are they going to spend, and so on? much, much more difficult in that case. And that's exactly the leading edge where we are today. Yeah, so and that that's a perfect segue for me to, to have you share with the listeners uh, your sort of battle with Wall Street and, and the results of that. Maybe you could tell us how that happened and, and you know what you guys ended up coming up with and then what the results were. So I first want to tell you a contractual example, one that we can point to very tangibly, and then I'll speculate about a non-contractual one. So in my paper on uh, basically contractual corporate valuation, where we take the relatively obvious metrics, uh, we, we uh, did an analysis of DISH Network and Sirius XM satellite radio. 
So we took the, the publicly available information, so the information that on a quarterly basis they are telling investors how many customers they've acquired, how many customers have they lost, what's the average revenue per user, so the standard kinds of metrics, but we go below the surface of it uh, to really understand the nature of the heterogeneity across customers, how, how the different cohorts vary from each other, really the, the nitty-gritty stuff that is, is hard to do with such limited information, except that in this case we kind of know what we're looking for because we've done it with so many companies where we, where we have their internal data. So we kind of pieced it all together and we came up with the valuations and it turned out that we kind of hit the, the nail on the head for both of them within I think like three or five percent. But then just for fun, we compared uh, our, these bottom-up forecasts to the ones that Wall Street was making uh, and we noticed that ours were, were, were actually closer. And then to go one step further, this is really the, the awesome part. Uh, I gave my students, my MBAs and undergraduates, the, the data on DISH, just looking at acquisitions alone. So just one piece of the puzzle. And admittedly, probably the easiest of the various pieces. And we said, hey students, here are all the DISH acquisitions that they've released since the company first started doing so. Come up with an appropriate model using all the kinds of statistical methods that I deal with. And then, by the way, make some forecasts for, for the next four quarters. It was really just a, a, a fun academic exercise. I had no idea that we actually would compare ourselves to, to the analysts. But in the first week of May, when DISH put out its, its, its Q1 numbers, we noticed two things. Number one, our students totally nailed it. They were within 0.5% of the number that DISH announced. And these students came up with the forecast a month earlier. And that's nice. Then we looked at the consensus Wall Street analyst forecast. We noticed that they were off by about 10%. Whoa, big difference. And so now the really cool thing is, and we, we wrote a, a blog post on it, and I'm sure you'll, you'll share that with your listeners. The really cool thing is we've kind of got on a limb in that same piece and said, here are the numbers for the next three quarters. So sometimes the next couple of weeks, Dish will make another announcement, and, and our numbers are quite different than the Wall Street folks. And I'm standing by our numbers. I'm, I'm actually quite confident that we'll have a, a, a better forecast than Wall Street once again. Uh, I, I really think that the, the bottom-up way of doing things is just plain better because it is more disciplined. You're relying on tried-and-true methods rather than being um, uh, so uh, overly influenced by surface-level features that, that might be interesting but not, might, might not have as much effect uh, as one might think. So that's the contractual example. What's the non-contractual? And, and that's really just fantastic. I, I almost don't want to take up any airtime because <laughs> this is great. So, <laughs> uh, you know, what's the non-contractual? So I'm going to tell, tell you the, the full story. So, so my PhD student, Dan McCarthy, and I wrote the paper to say, all right, here's how you do it in the non-contractual world. And I'll be the first to admit that there's some pretty nasty math in it. It is much harder in the non-contractual world for the reasons that I said earlier. But we did all the math, and then we applied it actually to a private company. Uh, and we, and uh, the problem is we had no number to benchmark it against. So we showed how well our model fit and forecast and this and that. The reviewers of the journal said, this is nice, but you got to do it for some publicly traded companies. Uh, and, and we looked around because we weren't sure that there were any publicly traded non-contractual companies that would release adequate information about the size and nature of the repeat of the customer base and repeat purchasing. And then we found it. We found two companies that actually are in a bit of a pissing match right now, uh, kind of uh, kind of throwing rocks at each other. 
Uh, the two companies are Overstock and Wayfair. And it turns out that they, they reveal lots and lots of metrics about, again, the size of their customer base and the repeat purchasing propensities. Just enough to let us uh, piece the model together and, and forecast how many customers will they acquire, and not just how long will they be around, but how many transactions will they engage in, what will be the average size of those transactions, all the pieces to the puzzle that we need. And the results are fascinating. Because we find out that in the case of Overstock, our valuation is pretty darn close, within a couple of percentage points of the market valuation. In the case of Wayfair, way, way, way off. We find, of course it depends again what, what day people are listening to this, uh, but we find that uh, the, the stock price of, of Wayfair is about three times what it should be. This company is grossly overvalued. And when you look at the metrics, there's just no way that you can justify the valuation that they have. Uh, and, and we've done very careful sensitivity analyses around it, and it's just way, way, way off. So, hey, listeners, stock tip. Sell Wayfair short. Oh, boy. I mean it. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Maybe we'll, maybe we'll cut that part out. <laughs> Who knows? They might blow it out. You never know. Uh, no, and but actually, it's it's a really good point that even though the valuations we come up with, I really do believe, you know, other stuff happens in the marketplace. And, and of course, one of the just endless rumors about Wayfair or really any e-commerce company is that the possibility that some bigger company will will buy them and overpay for them. And then they look like geniuses. So sometimes it's 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 hard to uh, to to fully appreciate these market valuations because you don't often get a chance to to just watch the company over the long run. You know, very often they do, uh, you know, disappear for one one reason or another. Uh, but at least at this moment in time, uh, we can say that that there's one company that that is overvalued, and we can we can really break it down and say how much of that is attributable to the their inability to acquire as many customers as some might think, or to do so in such a cost-effective manner, or to get them to buy as much stuff, or buy as often, spend as much, and keep doing so for a long period of time. We can really decompose it into all of these constituent behaviors, and therefore gives me a much higher degree of confidence. You know, we really are looking at the fundamentals, not just a lot of surface-level details uh, about uh, about the about the marketplace and, and, and things that, I'm not saying they're, they're irrelevant, but they're harder to, to quantify and, and, and hold accountable. So let me take that as a springboard and say, because you've just said a lot, right? I mean, it, there was so many great nuggets in there. But if we think about kind of what's next for a marketer or a seller or a small business owner, if I were to distill what you've just said is, you know, sort of pivoting the company from being product-centric to customer-centric is, is more than a tagline, and I'm oversimplifying for obvious reasons, right? It's more than a tagline. And yes, and again, the, the problem is that, that using a label, customer centricity that other people have used before, and it's uh, often a purely qualitative thing. Oh, be nice to your customers. Uh, and that's not where I am. I, I really want to put dollars and cents up against it. And that's why I'm willing to go out on a limb and, and, and make forecasts and name names uh, I, I really think that our ability to do so, especially if I'm right, is going to win much more credibility for this strategic idea than simply uh, telling a compelling story and having a, a snazzy PowerPoint. Uh, and I hope 
that those who hear the story and appreciate it um, won't only be marketers. I really hope that the CFO will be just as interested and it will uh, create a dialogue with the marketers that just ordinarily doesn't happen. I really want it to be a corporate-wide strategy with, with hard numbers up against it that uh, can be measured, that can be tested. Uh, and, you know, some of these valuation examples are just one aspect of customer centricity, but they're a really nice way to, to help it gain that kind of credibility. Well, and I and I agree, right? And so the, the comment I was making about pivoting from sort of product-led to customer-led is more than these metrics. But I think it's a cultural shift as well, right? Because you have to be willing to say, you know what, we maybe we were looking at lifetime value or we were looking at customer acquisition or churn rates or whatever it might be in, in a contractual relationship or even in its non-contractual where how much is it costing us to uh, acquire a customer. Maybe we have a loyalty program so we know their recency of purchase, we know the share of wallet we're getting or we may know, you know the average sale price or basket size or whatever their metric is. And those tend to be metrics that I think everyone is comfortable with. I'm not so sure though that even though they may track them, that they use them as leading indicators or kind of canaries in the coal mine to say, uh-oh, there's a problem and we need to course correct and we need to build some hypothesis around why is this happening and what is this telling us. I worry that you they just right sort of right? pile through the numbers, right? That That's so right. It's not enough just to create a, a nice looking dashboard and see which ones are trending up or down and to see which ones are are correlated with future earnings. The real key to it all and everything that I do is to get below the surface of the numbers and say, what is the story? And I've already laid it out, and it's actually pretty simple. How many customers will we acquire? How long will they stick around? How many transactions will they make? And how much will they spend? To be able to pull apart all of those things and how all of those behavioral traits vary across the customers and vary over time. Uh, it, so it really is taking these observable signals and instead of looking at them as as kind of a be-all and end-all by themselves to say that that they're just kind of fuzzy indicators of true underlying unobservable propensities uh, but that's what we want to get at is, is we really want to kind of really focus on that whole signal to noise ratio we want to get that underlying signal and then use it to make our forecasts of, about future earnings as well as our diagnostics about what's going well and poorly for the company. Yeah, and you know, as a you know, as you and I know, and you you, you know, you you know, I always say this. I kind of call myself the recovering seller, right? Where I, I I sort of bleed the sales blood, and you know, I I we we sort of have fun around the marketing and sales roles, which is always a probably for another podcast. But uh, you know, I'd say this is that I'm much more of a gut selling leader and a gut seller than a been a statistical leader and, and sort of numbers kind of person. But I'd say that in the last, you know, decade, I've gotten much more comfortable with understanding the value of these other levers that we have at, you know, our disposal if we're if we're looking at them and leaning on them for for uh, these kind of, uh, you know, signals that are coming from the market. And so I'd say that. And then the second thing I'd say is that technology has gotten so much better on the predictive and analytics side that we can be so much smarter with actually less work, where we can work smarter and not harder to get this kind of information, where before it used to be really laborious to get your hands on all these things, uh, because it was Excel spreadsheets and it was, you know, running number, and it was you needed teams of people and data scientists, particular, uh, 
potentially. And now you've got this democratization of technology and AI and, and predictive and you know companies like Zodiac and others, where you now all of a sudden can push all this power into the hands of so many more people to make the better decisions in business. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me comment on each of those excellent points. So let's, let's start with the second one. Uh, it, it's not only a matter of being smarter uh, wor without working harder. Uh, uh, to get real specific about that, it's being smarter using less data. <laughs> uh, that that uh, if we know which numbers we're looking for, because again, we're, we're not doing a big data thing where we're just correlating everything with everything. We know what story we want to tell under the surface about, you know, again, how long customers are going to stay, et cetera. And, and if we can just figure out what are the, the, the one or two surface level metrics that we need, uh, and that's part of the research, is what would be the aggregate indicators that will let us best uncover the, these, these true underlying patterns. Uh, and so it's so basically going to companies and say, don't report everything, just report these two things over here. So for instance, in the non-contractual case, if you could report the number of active users in a given quarter, which a lot of companies do, but then if you could also report the average number of orders that those active users make, which is a very reasonable metric, but very, very few public companies ever report that. So it's, so it's getting smarter about the, the, the couple of metrics that are going to let us uncover everything. And that's going to help us uh, have more consistency in the way we do these calculations. It's going to make them more computationally efficient. It, it just helps these ideas of customer valuation scale so that we can do it for an entire enterprise instead of doing some, some tiny little pilot project. And then to your earlier point, you know, th that, that, that blend between data and analytics and gut feeling intuition. You know, you and I are perfect complements to each other because I keep saying over and over, I trust the numbers, I trust the numbers, but then once I have my numbers, I have my forecasts, then the ability to take action on them. So, okay, what's the next thing I'm going to do? Then I'm going, hemina, 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 I don't know. <laughs> That's a hard question. Um, whereas someone like yourself, especially someone like yourself who also does have some respect for and faith in the numbers, even if not, you know, blind reliance like me, would have a better sense about, okay, I got this incremental dollar to spend, which of those activities right. am I going to spend it on? And sometimes having good instincts is going to be more important than having a good model to come up with that question, which ultimately might be more, more important than just coming up with a good forecast. So with that, I mean, this time has flown by. I feel like we could just keep going on and on and on. But, you know, you have covered so much ground and I'm, and I'm so thrilled we got to have that conversation because uh, hopefully those, uh, those of you that are listening to the podcast can go back and see how these companies have done based on what, what Peter has said. And we will definitely put that information in the show notes so that you can go and reference these, these white papers you mentioned. Uh, but with that, you know, we are out of time. But, you know, Peter, I always like to end as well on this sort of what's next. So what's next for you for customer lifetime value or customer centricity or sort of the, the analytics uh, side of, of growing business? real easy and real frustrating. <laughs> uh, we've proven that our ability to value customers is legit. And in this in this corporate valuation setting, a, a lot of hedge funds and private equity firms are saying, oh, tell us more. But what I really want isn't them, because I'm a marketing guy. I want the retailers and other just regular old marketers to step on up and say, give us some of that customer valuation. And I just find it, as I said, frustrating 
because there are so many companies out there that could benefit so much from having that magic wand to see what each customer is worth and to, to drive better decisions and to evaluate a lot of things that they're doing with, say, customer experience and so on. But they're just not doing it. They either don't believe that these models can work or they don't understand uh, how they would use the numbers or where they would fit in. So to me, that's the, that's the, the, the windmill that I'm tilting at is getting broad acceptance of customer valuation so that all companies are doing it and all of their senior managers and investors are holding them accountable on that basis. Still have a long way to go, but I appreciate an opportunity like this one to, to get people to start thinking about it and taking it a little bit more seriously. Well, of course, and it's been a pleasure having you, and, I, and I'm sure we're going to have to have you back as you you start to blow and shatter the glass on on some of the work that Wall Street is doing versus what your students are doing, which is fantastic, right? Uh, educating, empowering the next generation that hopefully will make it different, make a difference out there. So appreciate all you're doing, Peter. And you know, thank you again for spending some time with us on the What's Next podcast, and we'll look forward to speaking with you again soon. Absolutely, Tiffany. Always, always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for tuning in to the What's Next podcast. Appreciate your support. Please make sure you subscribe, share with your friends, and leave a review. Head on over to tiffanybova.com backslash next for show notes and additional insights from me. And I'll see you on the next show. Thanks again.